Welcome back to Hair Metal Memories. We are your hosts. I am Brian. And I'm Aaron. It feels really good to be back. Uh, we're back with some new stuff. We decided to throw down a little harder this season because you guys have been so good to us. Um, we you, Hopefully you noticed the new theme We song. do appreciate your notes yeah. and we listen. Yeah, and we do listen. So And, and we're hoping uh, after we, we've taken a break and we've kind of retooled a little bit, come up with some new theme songs and things and some new segments that we hope you enjoy, um, all that stuff. Uh, but like, um, thanks again for listening and we are listening. And, you know, we are listening back to you. So let us know what's going on. Uh, we're at Hair Metal Memories Iowa at gmail.com. Or you can Facebook message us as well. We get a lot of comments that way, too. Um, we'll start out with uh, a little bit of news, just like stuff that's been going on in Aaron and I's lives. We we went and saw John 5. And it was really good. He's really good. I don't know if he completely qualifies as hair metal, but he's definitely no, he's but, hair you know, metal he's adjacent. adjacent. Yes. <laughs> he played on several David Lee Roth albums, and we've yeah. talked about David Lee Roth here. Bam. I'm Bam. good. Connected. Now, yeah. he did cut his set short the night we saw him because he was having some... Uh, one of our other friends was at the show, yeah. and I actually ended up talking to that person later, and 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 uh, Andrew went back and talked to the sound guy, and the sound guy's like, yeah, his guitars were getting some interference at like 2K, 4K interference or something like that, and it was... Just driving him oh, nuts, wow. and he was, fi- was finally like, you know what, I I can't keep doing this. So they finished their their medley, and and oh, they yeah. went off stage. But I get it; things happen. Yeah. He was real cool about it. He wasn't like mean to anybody. He wasn't shitty to the crowd. I he mean, just he was he was a total <laughs> pro about it. But he was just like, look, we're having audio problems. So he just yeah. he cut it about fifteen minutes short. But I don't know. I get it. It happens. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It was still a great show. It was. He was very good. Yeah. Uh, and we just recently saw Living Color, which is uh, holy shit! Yeah. Was that amazing? <laughs> it was a great show. They they played uh, outdoors at this mall in a parking lot uh, as part of the the Everclear Festival that's going around. Uh, we went the Summerland to tour, the Summerland tour, yeah. And uh, and Living Color just kicked all kinds of ass. And and again, not hair metal, but hair, sort of adjacent. But they came out during the time, you yeah, know. And yeah. uh, and Vernon, honestly, Vernon Reed was in that same class of guitar players. As there the are few bands guys. I've ever seen live that like just. Yeah could just destroy like that yeah. oh my god that's one of the tightest bands ever and they yeah. like span so much sound when you see them you know i mean like the song time's up is just like straight up like punk fury and then they can yeah. go oh, just, with prog thrown in right too. <laughs> yeah with like prog thrown in and stuff so they're just, just wow they can yeah. you know like the only other band that like covers that sort of ground is like fucking mr bungle or something like right. that they can just hop from one thing to another and just make it sound like you're hearing something natural it's, yeah. it's incredible yeah yeah living Col- we we wanted to give living color some love though because they they blew our minds and i bought um, vernon reed's hat that's right <laughs> yeah we should post a picture of you wearing vernon reed's hat or showing it off i thought or about like that, that. <laughs> that, that that'd be a good idea <laughs> Um, and a little bit of, I mean, this is a very small scale, but, uh, um, uh, I started digging into the Scorpions catalog. I'm doing some listening of that because, yeah. uh, uh, I realize there's a bunch of their stuff I have not listened to before. So, and, uh, we have it on our agenda. We have this whole season mapped out guys. We've got like, we know what our albums are this whole yes, season. In the past we would kind of do yeah. it week to week and get, yeah. and, and just guess at it. And then. You yeah. know, sit down and I would go try to acquire the LP or something like that. And uh, yeah, but we're, no, all, we're all organized this time. And, planning. Uh, yeah. Uh. yeah. And so the Scorpions will be on an upcoming episode. Uh, and so I, I wanted to dive in a little bit into the deep end. So I've been listening to some Scorpions lately. And once again, yeah, they're not exactly like, you know, necessarily hair rock in and of themselves. Yeah. But, you know, they were pretty much like a big thing during it and yeah. probably toured with a lot of those bands. And 
Yeah, exactly. And we like the Scorpions, so we want to talk about them. We do. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we did a Facebook post uh, asking which album we should cover, by the way. We, I think we got it down to two at this point. It's either yep. Love It for Sting or Blackout. Uh, but let it, please vote. Let us know which one you want us to cover, and that's what we'll do. But today we are covering the second album by Mr. Big. Lean into it. I'm pretty excited about this one. Uh, it was released March 26, 1991, and this album was a huge hit. It was. It uh, was pretty big. Yeah, it peaked at number 15 on the Billboard Top 200 charts. Uh, the song "To Be With You" hit number one um, all over the world, basically, like in almost every country. That was just. A, I honestly thought that was the only top 40 single off the album too, and that was not the case. That was not the case. Yeah, mm-hmm. "Just Take My Heart" peaked at number 16. Yeah, I thought the same. I didn't. I didn't think. I. I did not get. Just take my heart. Didn't get as much airplay around. Well, I didn't that even notice. I, I, I never. I never heard it the first time around. So yeah. like I, and it's weird that I missed it just because like you know my sort of all the the radio and the albums and the MTV and everything. I'm really right. surprised I missed that one because they were one of the bands that kind of, you know, even though. Um, even though the Pacific Northwest had taken over, they still managed to get some big hit singles during that phase. So did. I'm surprised yeah. I missed it. Yeah, they crossed over from being like hair metal into like, they crossed over as a pop band in a way, I think. I actually was just, uh, I was watching an interview with all the band members and uh, the interviewer asked asked them about the the Nirvana thing, you know, because this came out in March by September or by the, by the you know, you had, you had Nirvana and they were asking them about it and, Billy's like, well, th- the thing is, like, after our song took off, we were just touring the world, so we kind of missed out uh, uh, the initial explosion in the U.S. just because we were out touring and oh, yeah. doing our thing. Yeah, they were busy. And, uh, yeah. and Billy was actually cool about it. I was like, hey, man, and you know, I don't hold anything against that stuff. I like a lot of that stuff. So, right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Eric Martin himself, they asked him about it "Smells Like Teen Spirit." And he's like, I fucking think it's a great song. I think they're yeah. a great band, you know. So, yeah, yeah. They didn't seem to hold any animosity about you know no. that. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't. Now that I think about it, I don't hear a lot of animosity about grunge and stuff like that. But uh, I think they feel bad for themselves that, like you know, hair metal kind of got dwarfed so quickly and just abandoned so fast, you know. But I don't think anybody's hating on the grunge bands or anything. Well, right, they didn't yeah. have anything to do with it, you know. I mean, yeah. <laughs> they were just playing music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, Lean into it was a pl- it was a platinum album, so one point two million dollars in the states alone. Um, copies, yeah, copies. Sorry. Dollars. Yeah. They sold <laughs> At a dollar a copy. <laughs> so does this pass the hair metal smell test? No. No? I don't think it does. Wow. I, th- okay. I just think it come it came out in the it's just a rock band that came out in the nineties. It's sort of like okay. I don't think Badlands is a hair rock band exactly either. Yeah. It's kind of that sort of thing. I mean, I can see how it was marketed as it. They probably yeah. toured with a lot of those bands, but do I think it's like hair rock? Not really, no. Wow. Yeah, I, I thought that they were almost like the definition of hair metal. Really? Yeah, just because they have uh, their big hit is a pop ballad. And, uh, I mean, I'll and, accept that. And yeah. They're all like these fantastic musicians that, like, you know, and they had the hair and they had the spandex and all that stuff. I mean, so so they did they did all that stuff, but like. I mean, uh, some of it kind of looked like it, but I don't know. Yeah. Like, because this, this to me just, like, it, it sounds like a lot closer to like that. 70s rock to me it is just yeah. produced that's in fair. the 80s or 90s that's fair it does sound a lot like that um yeah it, it yeah. For, it's it, it's sort of like you know i don't think blue murder sounded very hair rock either no definitely not. uh and it's just it's not that these albums i'm mentioning sound the same but they all sound like not you know like this yeah. is leagues away from poison yeah yeah I, for I, sure. I, I would say now granted that's maybe true. poisons you know you're going all the way to like the the 
floofiest example or whatever. No hate on poison or anything like that. But right, yeah, yeah I, I just think if, if that's your basis of comparison, no, nah, I think this is just pretty much straight okay. rock. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, the on the cover of this album is the it's it's known as the Montparnasse train derailment, which was a famous train crash in France in 1895 where there was a train that was behind schedule, so the operator sped up and failed to break in time. So it crashed through the station wall, and all the passengers survived, but the masonry landed on a woman below and killed her. And it was a woman who'd been standing in for her husband who sold newspapers and had gone off to get the evening's papers. I I had wow. looked, I had seen this cover I've seen this image like in bars and stuff like that you know forever. Um, and yeah, I looked up that it was about the, the it's a photo of the Mount Parnass thing, but I didn't really look into it much closer than that. But that's crazy. Yeah, I, I, that's kind of an interesting story about like how you know I'd always kind of wondered how that happened, I guess. But like yeah, it, it always it's always been played for comedy, and uh, you know like. You know, you always, you always see that, that photo with like it says like "oh shit" or something below it. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, but but I'm glad only one person died. It seems like more people could have died. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. nothing like speeding up a quarter mile long train yeah. and not taking into account. Oh, if I go that much faster, I'm going to need to break this much more in advance. But, yeah, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it begins sort of a long trend of uh, all the Mr. Big albums have pun names that tie into the photo on the cover. So <laughs> I, I like it. They have a sense of humor about All themselves. good. You know, I appreciate that about a band. <laughs> uh, Mr. Big takes his name from a song by the band Free that did All Right Now. So oh, yeah, that, and Free's awesome. Yeah, and they later covered that song on, on their Bump Ahead album. Um Mr. Big was started by Billy Sheehan, who uh, was, put, you know, he had just finished up David Lee Ross stuff and was putting a band together. Um, so he he was talking to Mike Varney from Shrapnel Records and who had put out the Racer X albums. And so he kind of had Paul Gilbert in mind and helped him put the band together. Also, not the first time we've mentioned Shrapnel on this podcast. Right, yeah, <laughs> right. And probably not the last. No, probably not. <laughs> Um, the singer, Eric Martin, um, he was in a band called Start Raving Mad, um, which also included future winger guitarist and keyboardist Paul Taylor. Um, I missed that bit. I knew I, I knew like the Eric Martin yeah. band. Yeah, there was an Eric Martin band. He has, he has a, an incredible pedigree. I was trying to pull out just like what I thought were like really interesting little nuggets. Yeah, that, the history on this guy yeah. is incredible. Yeah, he <laughs> cut a demo with Chris Nix, who was Stevie Nix's brother. Um, he was later in a band called Kid Courage, who opened for ACDC in the Bay Area, which were ACDC's very first U.S. shows. And uh, so, so Eric Martin was opening for ACDC when they first came to the U.S., That's which is kind of cool. And he tried out for the, for a gig in Toto. Oh, I didn't know about that. They uh, they just they thought he was good, but too green. Um, oh, wow. He would have been a great fit for Toto. Supposedly, he tried out for Van Halen oh, uh, wow. after David Lee Roth left. Uh-huh. And he also tried out for uh, Rainbow. Oh, wow. And that would have put him as the, one of the people who would have been auditioning contemporaneously with uh, Joe Lynn Turner. Dang. Wow. So how about that shit, huh? That's pretty crazy. <laughs> he was also a vocalist in the Power Ranger Orchestra. You know, it was funny because, yeah, I, I found that running around. I'm like, there's no way that's what I think it is, right? Yeah, and, yeah it was that. Well, no, it's exactly yeah. what I thought it was. They had a song featured in the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie. And he's also on a, there was a Sega CD game that, uh, it was rumored that Mr. Big was the band that played all the music on this Sega CD game, but it was actually just Eric Martin with oh, okay. with session musicians. Okay. And uh, he, in 2010, he participated in a Tommy Bolin tribute album. So that's that's an Iowa connection. Yeah, Tommy uh, Bolin. I get them there. 
And but he's been on albums with everybody from like Ted Nugent and Sammy Hagar to Debbie Gibson. I mean, the guy gets around. He's and that yeah. you know this is this is one of those bands where yeah you yeah. know everybody's got like this history before they get to the band. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, Paul Gilbert. He was kind of a child prodigy, just insanely fast guitar player at an early age. Um, he taught at the Guitar Institute of Technology at seventeen. He's done like tons of studio work and collaborations, but Mr. Big's like what is his most successful project by far. Um, I think his recent solo work's pretty worth checking out, though. He just put out an album recently, and it's a it's a little it's like weirdo pop kind of, but interesting, but instrumental guitar weirdo pop. I mean, I've I've yeah. listened to a couple of his solo albums. Uh, yeah. I've got some on my computer. I don't remember <laughs> what the names of them are now, but I enjoyed yeah. them. They were really good. It, it was uh, what ended up making me want to listen to a little bit of Racer X, and yeah, I mm-hmm. listened to. Uh, I think they made an album. Yeah. They they after their initial run, I think they got back together and yeah. they made an album called Getting Heavier. Okay. And I listened to that and it was yeah, it sounds like a whole bunch of insanely good musicians. I think yeah. Scott Travis was the drummer in it too, and he plays in Judas Priest now. So I was oh, like, yeah. oh, that's cool. I like Scott Travis. And, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But Paul Gilbert's kind of abandoned like he, he got so well known for the fast thing that he kind of gave it up and he kind of disavows it now. He's he's more of like he's into the blues and he's more into melody and stuff like that. So which, And a really I fun thing, if you can find it. Um, well, you can find it. It's on YouTube. Uh, Marty Friedman, the former guitar player of Megadeth, oh, yeah. he had a TV show in Japan that ran for about a year called Rock Fujiyama. I can't stress enough how much you should look this up because it's super fun. Uh, but he would, it was like a rock and roll like kind of game show, but it was just like him and other guitar players being goofy. And uh, there's a whole episode <laughs> on YouTube with that Paul Gilbert's on, and the two of them are like super fun to listen to. Just I bet be guitar goofballs. It's yeah. it's wonderful. So please take some time and look this up. It's it's amazing. Yeah, Paul Gilbert seems pretty hilarious. I think he really doesn't take himself seriously. Well, and they love him is... over there because both him and Marty Friedman speak Japanese. And oh wow, <laughs> you know that's just really cool of him. That's very cool. Uh, on bass, we've got Billy Sheehan, uh, which probably. Billy Sheehan probably doesn't need much of an introduction. I'm pretty uh, sure for we, this audience, I would say. Yeah, and we already kind of gave an introduction for him when yeah, we were when we did, when we did the, uh, Eat Him and Smile. That's right. Yeah, um, but I pulled out a couple things that I didn't know just uh, just to throw a couple things out there. Um, I didn't know that he had toured with UFO in 1983. Oh, that surprised me. I thought Billy, no, I didn't know that Billy either. Sheehan with UFO would have been pretty badass. That's like post Talis pre David Lee Roth. Right. Yeah, and he was also in a band called Thrasher. Um, which, uh, which, the, and during that time, he shared the stage with future Anthrax guitarist Dan Spitz. So Billy Sheehan, future Anthrax guitarist Dan Spitz. Yeah. Wow. Because yeah, Dan Spitz joined Anthrax in. Oh, if I had to guess, I would say like eighty two, eighty three. Because he's on uh-huh. the first full length album, but I know they had somebody before him whose name is escaping me now. Now I feel bad about that, but. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I thought that was cool, the hidden uh, Billy Sheehan anthrax connection. <laughs> that's, no, that's really cool. Uh, the drummer, Pat Torpy, uh, he's another monster player who's played with everybody. Um, he started out with John John Parr. Who, the who St. Elmo's Fire the guy. The St. Elmo's yeah. Fire guy, yeah. Well, and then um, he, he, was, uh, he, he sat in with the bands on uh, uh, American Bandstand and Solid Gold TV. Mm-hmm. Yep. As like a member of the house band there. That's, so that's he ended it. up playing with just about everybody doing that. Uh, then he toured with Belinda Carlisle. And then he got asked to join The Knack that did My Sharona. And so he was in The Knack for a, a while. Um, he did some studio work for Blood, Sweat, and Tears. 
Um, and while he was recording the first Mr. Big album, he was called to replace Robert Plant's drummer on the Now and Zen tour. And and the band, like, of course, said, dude, you got to go. <laughs> oh, was yeah. like, dude, you're going to go play with Robert Plant. That's what we all want to do. I think he's also <laughs> one of the only people not named Anton Fig to play drums on, a, on an Ace Freely record. Oh, wow. Okay. Because Ace, Ace has stuck to mm-hmm. Anton Fig basically forever, and except okay. for Pat Torpy did some. Okay. Yeah, and eventually uh, he unfortunately contracted Parkinson's disease. Um, and even then the band kept him, they must have loved him a lot because they kept him around. He served as their drum producer, which I thought was really cool. I'm sorry, he wasn't the one who played with Ace. It was the guy who's been playing with them while Pat's okay. been the drum producer. Oh, okay, Ooh, okay. I messed that one up, people. Yeah. <laughs> They can't all be zingers. Nope, they can't. <laughs> yeah, and and he he sadly passed away in 2018. Um, Mr. Big has had a a pretty good career though. For their first tour, they opened for Rush. Which what is, a great tour! Right, I would man, I just can't imagine seeing Rush and Mr. Big at the same time. That'd be so freaking cool. Eric Martin told a story about that. How when uh, I think they were opening for Rush while when uh, To Be With You was a big hit. Because he said, yeah, when we were touring with them, uh, the Rush guys like came to our door and they're like, oh, my God, thank you, because you're here. We're actually getting girls at the show now. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's sad, but it's true. <laughs> yeah. And they later did uh, three sold out nights opening for Aerosmith at Wembley Stadium which I thought was kind of cool. That is hip. Uh, and they opened for Brian Adams at one point and the Scorpions, bringing it back to the Scorpions. Boom. <laughs> uh, they were not able to sustain their U.S. success, but they were big in Japan. They kind of, they're one of the groups. They're one that, of the big in Japan that, groups. That defined that term, actually. Yep. Yeah. And they um, did, well, you know, and that part also, once again, not their fault. It's just the world changed, like. Right, yeah. yeah. Right when they were doing their thing. Yeah, but Japan still loved them all the time. Um, and in 2010, they had an album called What If that was produced by Kevin Shirley, who's like Iron Maiden. I was going to mention that, too. Producer. I saw that name come up and I'm like, oh, yeah. crap, Kevin Shirley. That's yeah. awesome. I was excited about that. <laughs> yeah, the Iron Maiden, Mr. Big connection. Uh, they just recently, like just this summer, had a 30th anniversary edition of this album uh, with bonus stuff and a 5-1 mix on Super Audio CD. Um, so I just ordered that today. Uh, I was wondering. <laughs> there's uh, there's also like a cool edition of it that just came out. That's uh, the whole album on seven inch singles in a little yep. box set. And it's gorgeous. It has like some live tracks. I was, was going to try sides. to talk you into buying it when we were first talking about this season. <laughs> I was like, dude, just do it that way. It'd be so badass. You should spend way yeah. more than you need to to yeah. listen to this album. <laughs> yeah, it's tempting. There's a co- they do they cover Baba O'Reilly on it, and I and I haven't heard that yet. So I suppose if there was a band that could that could do that one justice, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so what what are your memories of this album? I never actually heard this album originally. I mean, okay. I knew who Mr. Big was, um, because when the first album came out, I remember seeing the video for "Addicted to That Rush," mm-hmm. and I just remember being like, "Is because you know." what was I I think it was nine years old or something when that album came out yeah and uh in that video opens up with Billy Sheehan like doing his tapping stuff and I was just sitting there yeah. going I didn't even know you could do that on a bass <laughs> what the hell I was just blown away by it and I never followed up on that one but I remember they played here in Ames they opened for somebody uh-huh. at uh, Hilton Coliseum and I don't I don't remember who it was now but I just remember seeing their name as an opener and just going oh that's cool yeah uh but no this album I knew um I knew the big song, 
and I knew um, the the drill song. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and so I was. I, this is probably one of the coldest ones I've gone in. You oh know? wow! Okay. Like yeah. Okay. I've always I've known who all the guys were. I've heard some live performance and stuff, but yeah, this is like one of the most blind ones for me. Okay. Yeah, and this is one of the ones that I've been most excited to get to. This is this one was a big one for me. I, I was super stoked about it. Just knowing what I know about your yeah. guitar playing biography, yeah. and no way am I surprised by that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was a I was a big fan of the first record when it came out, and and I got I had the tape of that, and I, I listened to it a lot. So I was really anticipating what the next album was going to be. Did they have transcriptions um, of some of these songs in Guitar Player? Yes, they did. Ha, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Did. Yeah, uh. they did. Yeah, uh, and and there was a it was kind of that switch over though because when lean into it came out i got it on cd when it first came out which, oh. yeah, and the rest of them had all gotten on cassette before um and i and i got to see them live uh they they played in des moines at the civic center they had a tour um and they were great uh and when did you see them um it was right after it was on the lean into it tour so were they the headliner so they were the headliner yeah Oh shit! Yeah, and the opener was Hardline, which was a Neil I've Sean. Heard of that. I was gonna say, yeah, yeah, that's like, yeah, that would be after Bad English broke up. Yeah, yep. God, I can't believe I know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Neil Sean looked really kind of. He he looked older than the rest of the band in Hardline, and they kind of. Uh, yes, and they that, kinda, No, I know that that's actually a fact because yeah. I think he was. It was his like attempt to you know I want to make something like. Yeah, you know, rocking. He wanted to be a hair metal band. Yeah, he wanted to be a hair metal band. Well, that's kind yeah. of what Bad English was. But like, imagine yeah. if like if Motley Crue only played Diane Warren songs. Right. That would that would like be what Bad <laughs> that's English. That's a good was. assessment of Bad English. <laughs> well, to, I think that their big song is a Diane Warren song. So. Oh, I bet you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember uh, there was a huge uh, Makita Drill sign on the stage because they sponsored the tour, um, and that felt like you know it was like. Um, there there was corporate sponsorship and things like that, which always felt kind of ugly and stuff. But for some reason, ha knowing that they played the drills on the song and having Makita sponsor the tour and having the big sign behind him seemed like kind of like rock and roll to me. Um, well, yeah. knowing that yeah. they had the drill thing is you know it's okay, yeah. it's a little different. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I had a great time at that show and and was and just made me love the band that much more. They they were you know they were charming. They didn't take themselves seriously. They cracked up a lot. They were, but the musicianship was always super top notch. It seems course. like one of those shows where literally every member of the band would have like a solo. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, I guess except for Eric Martin, but right. that's okay. He's like, you mean I get like twenty minutes right. to like rest my voice? <laughs> yeah. You guys just you guys solo trade off. Yeah. Hey, I'll take a minute. <laughs> He was talking, Eric Martin mentioned when he first joined the band, he was like, I was, at first I was kind of afraid it was just going to be nothing but weedly, 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 because, you know, I knew that <laughs> Paul and Eric were in it, but I, or uh, Paul and, uh, and, uh, Billy, Billy yeah. but he goes, then I, I realized, you know, they all loved songwriting, so it wasn't right, yeah. going to be like that. They had done a lot of that stuff already, so. Yeah, they got <laughs> it out of their system. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the record. Um, this record is so good. <laughs> there's so much melody in it with some of the best players in the world just doing their thing in great songs is like you know um so overall i just really dig it we, we kick off with uh daddy brother lover little boy the electric drill song um this is where paul gilbert and billy sheehan use makita cordless electric drills uh to, to play like the guitar solo section and it starts the album off where they're warming up their drills and stuff um, and a uh, side note on our on our first season, this was one of the guitar parts that we sampled for our yep, theme for song. Our, yeah. <laughs> we just had a collage of guitar bits. So if you go back and listen to an earlier episode, you'll hear you'll hear a bit of it in there. Um, 
Yeah, but let's play a little bit. I'm going to play that drill section because it's just so cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's nuts. That's just insane. I love they just keep the drills going while they're playing. And just how much of the solo, like the bass is doubled up on that guitar is just right. insane. Yeah. I mean, I know Billy did that with Steve Vai too, but just, yeah. it's, it's, it's one of those things that no matter how many times you listen to the bass, double up the guitar is just like, damn. Yeah. He's, he's working for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Plus the vocal on that song just rocks. I mean, he, he really is a good singer. I'm amazed oh. it wasn't a bigger single. Me too. Me too. Especially because, you know, I mean, Smells Like Teen Spirit still had like six months to go. And mm-hmm. and that song like freaking rocks. I don't know yeah. what didn't make it like just soar like some of the, so many other rocking tunes. Yeah, same. Uh, then we've got Alive and Kicking. Uh, the the liner notes in the, uh, the record say that Paul came up with this riff while tuning. Maybe he should tune more often. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got cowbell. We like cowbell yeah. here. Yeah. This is the longest song on the album. And uh, I like, there's like little hand claps on the album, like or in the song, yeah. in little spots. I, it's it's uh, it's weird how like cool and thrifty they decided to be with hand claps of all things. That, right. that, that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. They're really trying to be good arrangers and like, you know, and really, you know, make the song special. All those and, little and, details. Uh, apparently based on an interview that I found, uh, this is Eric Martin's favorite song on the album. Like, oh, really? They were asking the members, you know, what's what's one of your favorite songs you wrote? And uh-huh. what song do you wish you you could yeah. have wrote? And uh, yeah, Eric's like, I don't know. I'll have a kicking. I'm really proud of it. He like he's just really fond of the story it tells and everything. Yeah. And uh, then they asked him, you know, what song do you wish you could have written just by anybody else? And he just looks over to Paul and goes, Green Tinted Sixties Mind. <laughs> like, That's awesome. I-, I wish I wrote that song. <laughs> so it's a good right one. On. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and the song just it has a great swing to it. It's like just a super solid rock song. The solo gets a little raunchy and out there in the middle in like the best way, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, yeah, I like the middle section of it too. Yeah, like, yeah, because like when it breaks down, it's just not just like guitar solo. It's like yeah. a middle section, and actually the bass gets to kind of drive during that part. Yeah, and I I, I like that. Yeah, I like that too. You can tell they worked it all out where they're just like, and then four bars of this and four bars of that, and then I'll do this. You know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Their sense that. of composition is really showed right. off on that song. It's just yeah. real tight, and they just know all their little parts so well. Oh, this is great. Uh, then we've got Green Tinted Sixties Mind, and this it feels like this should have to me. I think this should have been a huge hit for him too. I don't know why it wasn't. I, I think it got some airplay, but not a lot. I mean, it has such a great chorus. Was it actually released as a single? I don't think so. Yes, actually, oh, it was is it? the second single off the album. Oh, really? I don't okay. know. I did not know that. If it was like. In the U.S., but it's apparently okay. the second single on the album. Because I, I do remember bo- uh, multiple band members when being interviewed, they had mentioned how uh, 
before the big song, they had put the label had put out a couple uh-huh. singles that all just you know just sank. Yeah, and they were on the verge of being like, okay, we're just not going to promote this anymore. When they took one okay. more stab, yeah, yeah, this should have been a big hit. It's such a, it's yeah, it's such like a cool what? Song. Why didn't this just take off at the radio? Yeah. It's great, and it's actually it's it's uh, solely composed by Paul Gilbert. Oh, okay. There's yeah. only two songs on the album that have a solo person's or uh, that have a member of the band get sole writing okay. credit, and they're both Paul Gilbert. Wow, that's cool. Oh, like, yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, it, it sticks out. I mean, they really yeah. have confidence in Paul's uh, compositional, you know, yeah. skills. Yeah, it has a great chorus. I mean, it, I mean, it sounds big, you know. And and I also thought, I mean, when this came out, it uh, it stuck out to me because I had some. I was, when I was in high school, I'd listen to a bunch of '60s music and stuff. And so when hair metal came around, I was into it. But no one seemed to be referencing the '60s in any way. And so to me, they captured like a really cool moment that no one else was, you know, banking on at the, at the time. Um, so I thought it was a really cool move that they did that. A little bit of '60s in the '80s was sort of like. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Why isn't no. anybody else doing that? <laughs> Everybody else is trying to be Led Zeppelin. <laughs> or the New York Dolls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it resonated with me. Um, and there's, yeah, just great melodic playing throughout the whole thing. Yep. Yeah, I, I, one of my other notes just said, hanging out with Janice, make sure you stay away from that Southern Comfort. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good Yuck. joke. Yeah. Uh yeah, let's play the the intro for this. Yeah, because the intro to this is like it's, it's just so cool. It's so it? awesome. Those are awesome little bass chords behind that guitar thing too, man. Yep. That's just <laughs> yeah. You don't hear a lot of that. <laughs> these guys, I'm, these guys are like the masters of the intro. You know, yeah. they're. I could have just easily made just been like, let's just play the intro to every damn song because the. the yeah. I mean, they, they grab the, your attention right, right away. Right. I mean, they never had, had to give you this little tasty little nugget to be like, oh really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, after this, we've got CDFF. Lucky this time. And the CDFF stands for CD Compact Disc Fast Forward. And what they're fast forwarding through, if you listen, is addicted to that rush. Yep. Which I I thought that's a good little like touch point. And CDFF is the uh, chord progression of addicted to that rush. So it's like a double thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They they, they put a lot of thought into that. Yeah, and this song's a total power ballad. It uh, it seems like it could have been a big hit, too. I mean... The thing that gets me here is you can... Uh, the thing that th- that occurs to me is this is the one song on the album that you can tell was not written by any member of Mr. Big. It sticks yeah. out to me when I hear it, like in the flow of the album. You can tell that nobody Mr. Big wrote this. It was written by somebody named oh. Jeff Paris. Okay. Uh, who um, was one of these people who just kind of, he was a session musician. He worked here. He worked there. He uh, recorded on a, on a Bill Withers album. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. He wrote songs for Lita Ford and Y&T. Okay. Uh, he wrote songs for Vixen. Oh, wow. Okay. And then he had some of his own records. And so this is apparently like, it was on a Jeff Paris album. Okay. I guess. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, to me, you can tell that it was written by somebody else. Yeah. I kind of thought it seemed well-crafted and had some good guitar moves. But uh, for me, it's um, it seemed like it could have been a big hit, but I didn't quite like it as much. And I wasn't right. quite and sure why. I actually made that note. I'm like, this yeah. sounds like it was made... To be on the top forty, right? It it yeah. really has that sound. Yeah. Uh, then after that, we have Voodoo Kiss, uh, and this song, 
uh, speaking of intros, <laughs> I I, uh, I noted that too. I was like, wow, quite the acoustic this intro. Has, this has a pretty sweet acoustic guitar intro. Uh, let's let's just play that. Oh yes. song kicks in and it just like blows. and it's a killer yeah. shuffle it's a killer shuffle I, yeah. I i really love the uh the bands that are comprised of all those, those insanely good musicians they just always tend yeah. to have the best shuffle beats you know yeah. I mean, like. <laughs> the title of it was making me think of uh of the badlands album voodoo highway um which led me across this weird little side note of the drummer on voodoo highway was the singer for racer x jeff martin for a bit yeah yeah, so we have a little connection Which to is Paul funny, Gilbert. I've, I've uh, never actually heard Voodoo Highway. Oh, yeah? I've never heard a note of it. Yeah. Uh, I've always wanted to. It's just not easy to acquire. Well, yeah. I was going to try to look for an LP copy, and, well, here yeah. we are. Right. <laughs> yes, I could go buy a CD for two bucks off yeah. Amazon. Don't want to. Yep, yep. I used to have both those Badlands albums on vinyl. No, oh, you're killing me, dude. I gave them up, and I don't uh, know why. Uh, yeah. uh, don't give up your albums, kids. Hold on to them, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but then, uh, um, cause you know, Eric Singer in Badlands left Badlands to join Kiss and so they had an opening and so boom. Yeah. I, I, I thought, I thought Voodoo Kiss could be, could have been an Aerosmith song. Yes. In a lot of ways. It has that feel. And I, I like, uh, it's another one that has like a midsection that I enjoy cause it's not just, yeah. we're just going to have a middle eight solo. Yeah. They kind of just have a section there and that's. I dig that. That's that. I dig that too. Especially when you have somebody like Paul Gilbert, who you know could just put down some magic right there, and he's like, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna hang back, I'm just gonna chill. You don't hear enough. Restraint of that in, is awesome in, in music nowadays. You know, where <laughs> where, where they, they write a whole se- different section. It's always like, here's the groove, and that sometimes that's all you get. Maybe you get a chorus, but you know. I mean, if you're in a disco group, I'm not gonna hate on you for it. But right, that's it, true. So, come on. <laughs> or crowd rock. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's that too. Yeah. If you want to play some noise um, stuff, I'm down. But. <laughs> Uh, next up is Never Say Never. Um, this is another tune that I think could have been a big radio hit in the Aerosmith mode. Well, it's funny you say that because the co-writer on the song is Jim Valance. Okay. And Jim Valance, uh, he wrote Ragdoll. Okay, okay. And, uh, or he was a, a co-writer on it. And he also was a co-writer on um, um, The Other Side, yeah. great Aerosmith song. Uh, Eat the Rich, Deuces Are Wild. That's the song from the Beavis and Butthead CD. Okay. So yeah, he has a whole bunch of work with like Aerosmith. Um, he was the co-writer on the amazing song "Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone." Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Jim Valance also had an extraordinarily long co-writing partnership with Brian Adams. Okay, straight okay. from the heart, cuts like a knife. Okay, uh, yeah, he was co-writer on all that stuff. So okay, yeah, so they he's a professional songwriter dude. Uh-huh. Okay, huh. And wow. actually, we hadn't mentioned it yet, but a whole bunch of these songs are also are co-written by another person named Andre Pessis, mm-hmm. whose name comes up on one, two, three, four of the songs on the album. And that guy uh, is all over the place as well. He also wrote with uh, Europe, uh, Waylon Jennings, Richie Zito. Uh, he he wrote some music for the Southern Pacific, the uh, South Pacific soundtrack, uh, or wow. so, so, I'm sorry, Southern Pacific. Ugh. <laughs> but uh yeah so it's just another guy he wrote for um a jonathan kane album i won't hold that against him but uh he wrote for some he wrote for some journey albums won't hold that against him 
didn't hurt his career. <laughs> Certainly not. I also see he has a co-writer credit on a stylistics album. And mm-hmm. now I'm like, okay, now we're talking because I love the stylistics. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, I was uh, I didn't realize how much um, like third party songwriting that they okay. used, and because most of it's actually with the with the exception of CDFF, they mm-hmm. all sound like Mr. Big songs. So yeah. I didn't even look into the songwriting aspect for some reason. I just I saw some extra names on there that weren't in the band, and I just for some reason I didn't go down that. I didn't hole. intend to at first. I'm glad you did. Until I saw Jim Valance, and I was like, I know that name from yeah. something. I was like, I think that's the guy who writes with Aerosmith. And I pulled him up and went, oh, I did. Yeah. So then that sent me down a hole of looking up all the other writers on the album. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think uh, Never Say Never is another one of those songs, though, where, like, uh, you know, everything is solid and stuff. But the but um, Eric Martin's vocals on this, man, that guy's got some great vocal chops. It's kind of like if you had a – he's almost like if you had a soul vocalist singing yeah. in a rock band. Yeah. He, like, kind of brings that kind of approach. Yeah. I think the riff in this one's one of my favorite riffs on the album too. Honestly, yeah. from uh, uh, it also sounded like it could have been a single. I think if yep. you like yep. every bit as much as as the drill song or Green Tennessee's Mind, I think this yeah. could be a single. Yeah. Uh, and then next up is a song that was a single, "Just Take My Heart." Um, this has another cool guitar intro, like more 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 of a spacey bent this time. Uh, and you can kind of tell that this one was designed to be a hit, you know. Yes, it, it has, has that a, feel. Yeah, it's another power ballad. Uh, the liner notes on the record say that it was written on piano, performed on guitar. Boom. <laughs> one of my notes was, did they put all their ballads on the B side of this album? <laughs> Honestly, I mean, yeah. it's like a, once again, it's a really well constructed song. But uh, for me, I probably yeah. would have left this one off the album. Yeah, yeah. But I have no platinum albums to my credit, so take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah, and and you had a note you wanted to play the chorus to this one. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Let's let's play That's the chorus, and I'll dive into it. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that that snare drum, mm-hmm. that could only sound like that if you were from the '80s or early '90s. <laughs> I was just listening to it and like, don't get me wrong. Yeah, like I say, th- this might be my least favorite song on the album, but I was just listening to those drums and just going, yeah, you know, if you had recorded this album like a year later, that effect would not have been on your snare drum. Yeah. yeah, and they do some interesting things with the chorus at the end, where they they repeat the chorus a bunch, but they do it in varying ways, and you know, and so they 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 put that that songwriterly sort of touch on it at the end. And the song ends on a Picardy third for the music theory nerds out there, which is when you're in a minor key and you end on a major chord. Ah, like the the outro to Roundabout by Yes does that. Bling. That last chord is a major chord, and it sounds like it resolved. So they do that on this song too. So. I always, I always think that's kind of cool when bands do that's that. That's rad. No, I, I didn't even know. What to, I hear Pickardy, and I think you're just talking about John Luke Picard, you know, and, and, and something that has qualities pertaining to him. Yeah. I like that definition better. Someone's a little Pickardy today. Why don't you go hang out in 10 oh. Forward with Guinan and have us some synthahol? Jeez. Uh, next is My Kind of Woman. Um, this, has, this song has interesting lyrics. 
that uh, kind of don't fit the music, I think. But the song rocks pretty hard anyway. So I'm, One of my I, notes I, about it was um, if any other 80s band or had had done this same song, it would have sounded a lot sleazier. Right. But just something about the way they play it and the way Eric yeah. sings it, it doesn't yeah. come across that way. Huh? Yeah, He really does sound like he's singing with his heart. You yeah. Know? I mean, as, as cheesy or corny as that and may sound. And this is the one um, in the verses... When when they go from the first to the second chord in the verse, it just sounds like a rat move to me. I mean, oh, okay. you know, yeah. very complimentary about it because I, I love rat. Yeah. And I wasn't because like I was listening to the song. I was like, that move just sounds really familiar. And I kind of sat there and had to think about it a little bit. And yeah, oh. it sounds like like a Warren Demartini, Robin Crosby type of a chord change. I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the song also has the tried and true hair metal staple of having the guitar solo over an entirely different section in the middle, uh, which reminded me of Dokken. But I can see right. Rat did that a lot, though, too. That's a good, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't even think you were, you're right. They would put, like, that. The, the solo would have its own very special, yeah. like, very specific structure and chords. Yeah. Yeah, but then you got these lyrics that are like, uh, he, he's, he sings about women in old movies, and like that, and that, that's how it, they're his kind of w- women, I guess. And But one of them is, like, from 1946. Like, in the first verse, he says, he's looking at the screen, and this woman's from 1946. And I was trying to imagine, like, mm. who we might be talking about. Like, Lauren Bacall. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't think of, like, you know, beautiful actresses who would have been on the screen in 1946. So I was curious about it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It, so I guess that's mark of a good song because he's got me thinking about that now. <laughs> Look at that. He's got his hooks in. I'm going to come over and you're going to be watching African Queen next week. It's a good movie, though, so I would still advise watching it. Uh, next up is A Little Too Loose. Um, I dig the vocal at the beginning. That you know, that's actually the first note I said is who does who does those vocals? Who is yeah. that? I assumed it was Eric Martin, but I don't know that for sure. I mean, it seems like Boy, he's credited it, as it, but anybody could have. Yeah, cause boy, it's just so low. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like ZZ Top doing like right? like, like Tush, you know. <laughs> See, I was guessing it was something like it was Paul Gilbert or something like yeah. that, but it might be. If yeah. any of y'all know out there, let us know, yeah. cause I'm stuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is another tune that has a solid swing to it, very much in the blues rock mode. Has a nice big bridge too, which I'm always a sucker for. That this this song is actually my favorite uh, Pat Torpy work on the whole album. Okay, yeah, it, it's. It sounds real simple, but a lot of the little things he does, it's like yeah. just to, to keep that blues beat going, you gotta be real clever with your little He's grooving really hard. Yeah, yeah. and just some of the some of the ways he gets from here to there in sections. Yeah. I'm just like, no, that's really good. It's a very lyrical drum composition in this song, I think. Yeah. And I had a note that uh um I was trying to imagine what this song would sound like if Guns N' Roses did it. Because they would add a little bit of, because it's like a little too loose, and it would add a little bit of sleaze to it. Like if you put a little axle sleaze really on it. That's a really good point. I, I think that might have been, I think this would have been a good Guns N' Roses song. It Wow. You know, I hadn't even thought about that. I can totally hear what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, which made me think that the only thing I don't like about this song is that it's just a little too slick, you know, for, for it being like, you know, kind of a grindy, sleazy kind of sounding song and everything. It would have been nice if they just like pulled back the, the layers of, Slickness, just but a there wasn't bit. a lot of dryly produced rock albums no. coming out that time. That's just not a you know. No, there wasn't. <laughs> yeah, good luck finding that record. Uh, next up is Road to Ruin, and uh, on this one they get to show off their vocal harmony powers because uh, all of them sing. That's and, what I, was, I, I think it's the yeah. it has easily has the best backing vocals on the album. Yeah, um, and I I pulled out the intro for this one as uh, something because I thought I thought we should take a listen to this. Heck yeah, it's so cool. 
By that they mean she came over and played the Ramones album Road to Ruin, and they were just like, "Wow, this is really good." Because you know that's what I thought too, so I get it. At least in my head, canon. <laughs> that makes it even more of a love song, really. <laughs> yeah, you see. And granted, I mean the whole album has a great bass tone, but I was really into the sound yeah. of the bass on this particular song. Yeah, there's just. You know how a lot of the times the bass just kind of rides in underneath everything and you get these little moments where it comes out to shine for like a second or two before you move back. And I love when that happens. And just the examples on this one were just really good. <laughs> yeah. And he, this is another one where I thought Eric Martin sings his ass off. He's, I mean, he's just, he's one of the great singers, but he's, I don't think he's held in the same regard as a bunch of people, you know? No. And that's, that's, that's weird. And it, I don't know, out, outside of like you know, music, people or whatever a lot of these guys you know if you're not yeah. billy sheehan in this band a lot of these people don't get as much mention as you would think they would because right, they're yeah. all just so fantastic i mean it's not like paul gilbert doesn't get mentioned but out, when you start kind of like leaving yeah. the guitar player world right you don't get as much mention of paul gilbert no and that's weird because he's weird. fantastic mm -hmm. and can write a pop song <laughs> and speaking of pop songs we close out the album with to be with you um yeah. My note was, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is a song. Eric Martin wrote this song in his teens, um, and he didn't really think anybody would. He, he, he didn't think it was going to be a Mr. Big song, but they. they I guess they Paul Gilbert it. heard it when they were getting together to do a writing yeah. session. He pulled out To Be With You, and Paul Gilbert pulled out Green Tinted 60s Mind. They were both like, wow, these are both totally uncharacteristic, but we should have them on the album. Yeah. Yeah. Because I guess Paul helped him kind of do some of the arrangement of the song. Okay. okay. And Eric just had... And it, there's also a credit on this song to a David Graham, and I have never heard that name before. I had yeah, no either. reference. I looked him up. He was like a staff writer at the label at that time, and he doesn't have a whole lot of credits. Wow. There's like a, he had some backing vocals on an album by somebody named Martin Briley in 1985. Oh, that's the You Ain't Worth the Salt in My Tears guy. There it is. Yeah. And then no more credits until a composer on um, Mr. Biggs lean into it. And then he does like little, that looks like most of his, his credits is, is that. Oh, he must've been in the right place at the right time or something. Yeah. Yeah. And the only other thing I wanted to say about to be with you is it's the shortest song on the album, which I thought was kind of fitting. You know, they, they, that's just good songwriting. Like we're going to have this acoustic ballad, but let's keep it short. And while, you know, I mean, this one has like, this one has the big backing vocals too, but they're not like those mm. super sharp harmonized backing vocals. It's more like a right. like a group like campfire yeah. sort of backing vocal thing. Yeah, not overly processed and things. Yeah, but uh, and also a very tasteful solo. He keeps it real chill. Doesn't you know? It still sounds yeah. like it's played by somebody who's way better than you are at playing right. simple. Because <laughs> there's right. a, you know, it's not. He kind of just repeats the vocal yeah. melody with yeah. his guitar, but in a way that's like, look at these extra little flourishes I put in. It's like, yeah, yeah. I know you're better than me. I get it. Yeah, at the end, he just does a. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, and now we're gonna debut. One of our new segments where uh, uh, Aaron is like really into like he, he he understands like all the pressing history of albums and things like that. So we're going to do a vinyl history lesson. Oh my golly! So this one, it it was um, it's actually impressive that it got a vinyl pressing in the U.S. as well. They're, those are kind of expensive to acquire now because it came out during that period where you were starting to see. Uh, 
LPs no longer get pressed in the U.S., uh, it did get pressed just about everywhere in the world on vinyl, like all the major markets. You, there's club pressings, and then like it lapses out of print for just about 13 years. It got pressed all over the place, even like like Ecuador, Turkey, Bulgaria. There's like specific hmm. pressings to those nations, which is just strange because I mean, wow. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know what me. drives that. It's almost all Atlantic Records, but some of the some of the countries have little labels I've never heard of at all. Um, and then, of course, you know, during this big dry spell kind of after uh, Hair Rock uh, kind of goes away before it has this kind of resurgence later, the only place it got issued on CD was Japan, oh, which wow. I guess we shouldn't be super surprised about. Right, yeah. But it got reissued <laughs> in both uh, 2006 and 2009, and uh, the 2009 one is a Japanese SHM CD, so it probably sounds incredibly good, mm-hmm. and it's probably incredibly expensive now. <laughs> um, <laughs> It did. Um, there's a company called Friday Music that, that uh, from what I can tell, is very um, uh, uh, sympathetic towards towards 80s rock bands and do a lot of those reissues. Uh, I know um, Friday Music also reissued uh, uh, Kix's Blow My Fuse, a couple other ones that uh, suddenly now aren't coming to my mind. But Friday Music re- uh, reissued it in the U.S. about a decade ago with a few bonus tracks. And then uh, finally... For all you uh, vinyl aficionados, it actually got pressed again on on vinyl uh, just this year, but it's uh, Europe only, so yeah, you gotta you gotta pay the shipping. Yep. <laughs> but then, like he says, there's also a, another 30th anniversary coming out, uh, edition coming out that's gonna have all the bells and whistles with it and a, mm-hmm. a 5.1 mix. Uh, the one that uh, Brian listened to for reference today is a South Korean pressing. Uh, I've never actually heard the Korean pressing myself. I like I said, you know, I just listened to it. Yeah. Okay, and that's this is a thing I wanted to bring up because this annoyed the crap out of me when we were researching this album because I don't own it. So I was just like, I'll listen to it on YouTube Music. I have a paid YouTube Music account, and you know, YouTube Music is like, I mean, if it's on Spotify, if it's on Pandora, it's not going to be on YouTube Music. It's all the same freaking thing. But their uh, album is like way not sequenced properly, not tagged properly. Uh, so I had to like listen to the album there and I also had to pull up like YouTube YouTube and pull up videos because some songs weren't even on the digital edition of the album which so is really weird. strange yeah so I had it was a pain in the butt YouTube music please fix that because yeah yeah you think a platinum album would you know have the right track order right and it's not even like an obscure <laughs> record or anything yeah no. it's platinum man <laughs> there's songs on it that went to number one not an obscure album you can sequence this album properly but uh so yeah there's People will notice. Yes. <laughs> so there's a lot of pressings of this album. All said and done, if you count up LPs, CDs, and tapes, there's 66 different pressings, but almost all of them come before 1993 hmm. uh, in the initial boom. And then it just goes dark for a long time. And actually, that is one of the things that you're going to run into with some of these albums that aren't like like Motley Crue. They just have these really long dead spots of availability. Yeah. Um, maybe not as bad as like you know when Neil Young decides he's not going to reissue an album, which sometimes happens. But <laughs> but yeah, I, w- I was surprised at at uh, how long it wasn't in print. Yeah, yeah. For such a big album, you'd think it would be like constantly in print, and they'd all be just you know taking the royalty checks. Sure. <laughs> but then again, you know, I mean, ever since album sales like cratered in the early two thousands, I mean, right? Yeah. I guess you. Yeah, it'd be you need risky. to have special reason or something, but yeah. so yeah, there's there's a lot of them out there. There there's uh, 
I, I, I can't, I'd tell you to go pick it up too. I mean, I'm going to do it now that I've listened to it and I liked yeah. it as much as I did. I, I would like to own a copy. But yeah, so that's your little tiny uh, uh, vinyl history lesson for you. <laughs> I found my copy on Discogs uh, and it came from South Korea. It was it was shipped from South Korea. So it was it was wherever it got pressed, that's where it stayed apparently until, until I got mine. Cl- Not bad because I've run into, it. you know, there's been a few times I've tried to look for like a U.S. pressing of something and i have to like get it from germany or somewhere mm-hmm. else and i'm like why is there no copies for sale in the u.s you're killing me here but I mean, right, whatever yeah. so you know you gotta do what you gotta do yeah. <laughs> uh and now we have another new section this is going to be our section where we talk about uh um the the instruments and gear that people use to make albums and stuff so for you gearheads out there this one's for you this is gear talk All right, Paul Gilbert mostly plays Ibanez guitars. Um, he has a he has their Stratocaster. He has the FRM one hundred, which is Paul's signature model, and the FRM stands for Fireman because Paul Gilbert once turned one of their Iceman guitars upside down, and so he thought, now it's a Fireman. I turned it upside <laughs> down, but again with the sense of humor, you know. Uh, he plays a PGM three hundred, which is another one of his signature models. And he, uh, he recently started playing the Jet King Omar Rodriguez Lopez signature ORM1. Really? Yeah. So he's playing one of those. So Wild. Which I thought was kind of cool. And he mostly plays through Marshall heads, uh, the dual super lead, and the super modern, and Laney heads. Um, he For pedals, he uses a way huge green Rhino Mark II overdrive. Um I use a the the way huge swollen pickle on my pedal board, so it's like kind of in the. Oh, ballpark I love that one. Yeah, it's a good pedal. They make really good pedals. Um, he uses a Boss CS3 compre- compression sustainer, um, the TC Electronic Mojo Mojo Overdrive, uh, the Catalan Bread Callisto for chorus and vibrato, and he has another MXR M104 Distortion Plus, and you know, and a bunch of other stuff too. He has like recording rigs and. Uh, you know, he has various live rigs and things like that. He posted a picture on Instagram of his current pedal board um, or his last pedal board when they're getting ready for Mr. Big to go on tour. So um, so it was all like laid out right there. It was like cool to be able to like look at that stuff. Ooh, he's it looks like he has a, a he he uh, they made a pedal. Uh, 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 what is it? JHS pe- pedals. OK. Made a uh, the PG-14. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. PG fourteen, <laughs> man, they just they, they they love a good pun. Uh, uh, Billy Sheehan plays. He mostly plays through uh, Pierce BC one bass preamp or a Hartkey LH one thousand bass amplifier, or he has an Ampeg SF SVT four Pro twelve hundred watt. I have an um, SVT four hundred. It sits in the closet. It doesn't work right. Oh, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that's right. I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah, uh, and he plays them through a Hartkey AK four ten cabinet. Um, he's got a Yamaha Custom Shop Attitude double neck bass that he plays for like you know for some of the crazy stuff that he does. But he mostly plays like a Fender Precision bass. 
Uh, he uses an MXR M87 bass compressor pedal, an Ashley CLX52 stereo compressor limiter. He has one of those uh, new Line 6 Helix guitar multi-effects floor processors, which surprised me. See, look at that. Um, Even a pro is using Line 6. Don't yeah, hate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, you, there's a lot of capability in those things. And the the Helix line is like actually really good stuff. They they went back to but went back to ground and they kind of reinvented their their stuff. And like uh, Line 6 has some pretty good quality products again i think um and he he plays roto sound bs66 billy sheehan's signature bass strings hold your group together <laughs> with roto sound strings <laughs> and he uses a, surpri- a surprising number of guitar pedals i'm not going to go through all those but he has he he's not afraid of experimenting with guitar pedals by any stretch um and I mean, he's got to have some pedals down there <laughs> to get that just that super bright, gnarly tone that he right. gets. You know, there's some pedals going on. Right. And compression's just awesome, so whatever. Right, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, I, and I looked into Pat Torpy's drums, and, and I just have to confess, I don't know much about drums. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to own that right away. But I did I did some research on it because I, was, you know, I wanted to be able to talk about it. But it, I just wanted to confess that if there's any drummers listening to this, I don't really know what I'm talking about that much. Yeah. Um, but he looks like he he, there's lots of photos of him playing like the the tama drums and he endorses those um and he plays zildjian cymbals and i and i read an interview with him where he says that his main snare is tama's version of a ludwig black beauty it's six and a half by 14 inch and most of the time i had a coated emperor head on it so that was as much research as i got um we might like consult some other drummer people for future versions of this so that it'll and be if there are any drummers accurate. listening who are yeah. you know fans and you want to like hey, yeah. hey you know what <coughs> feel free to message yeah, we uh, please yeah. do we listen to you <laughs> yeah. all right and that's all we've got for mr biggs lean into it uh thanks again for sticking with us and uh hope you'll enjoy stick with us through the the third season man it's gonna be a whole lot of fun we got some yeah. crazy left field picks coming up yep Including a band that literally would just shed members to cooler things. <laughs> That's a good tease. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.